Thank you, ladies, for helping us get our hearts prepared for worship. I'd like to welcome everybody to a warm fellowship. Grace Reformed Baptist Church, in my humble but often correct opinion, is the best fellowship on earth. And uh, just some announcements. You can look in your bulletin at all the outreach, young adults, Thanksgiving, ladies' tea, and Christmas open house. Today, though, we have a fellowship meal directly after church. It's pie day, even though it's not March 15th. And you're welcome to come. If you haven't prepared anything, that's okay. I've, I've been checking out all the delicious food, visually, not orally yet. And there's enough for everybody, so please come on over. There are also some apples there that have been freshly baptized. They're Presbyterian because they've been sprinkled. They're not dunked, but four kinds of apples. And youth choir is going to be sometime, and I'll talk to you ladies about when we are going to do that because we have a business meeting also, so we have high-level, NASA-level uh, coordination today. Many of you remember Aragorn Thacker, and a lot of people signed a card uh, to her folks, and they wrote back, Dear friends at GRBC, thanks for letting the Lord's goodness flow through you. Friends to our precious daughter Aragorn and to us, we cannot express how much your card and kindness and sharing your memories and the love you still have for her has helped us. God's love never fails. Thank you so much. With love, Laverne and her husband. I can't read his name, so I don't want to mess it up. Okay, those are the announcements. Now a time for God's word. Uh, Pastor Wayne sends these out, and I got it Friday night, and I saw that I'm supposed to read the scripture, and I thought, Matthew chapter 5, the whole chapter? Then I thought, you know, you give yourself a Gibbs head slap and say, boom, it's God's word. Why am I complaining about reading God's word? We should have more of God's word as long as we end at noon. Okay, um, Matthew chapter 5, follow along with me. This is God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men, excuse me, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, 
and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Just a sidebar there. I've actually done that in church, where before the offering, I realized that there's something between a sister and me. And she thought it was strange that I was interrupting the offering, but I thought, I'm going to obey God's word and see if I can get things right, because I believe God's word. Do you? Amen. Yeah, I know you do. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that any, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard, it, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, 
Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Andy. That perfection that is required, that righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, will come through Jesus Christ and him alone. We will hear more about that Today, in your bulletin, we have marked here that this is Reformation Sunday. And so I have a special message on this topic, something I normally don't do, but we're going to address this specifically today. And in any case, so just to refresh your memory and a a bit about this day and why we commemorate this day, I think it would be helpful because it's better written than I could say it and more concise. I'm going to read an article from Stephen Nichols, uh, who is a history professor. You can find some of his material in Ligonier Ministry. He has a podcast called Five Minutes in Church History, and I highly recommend that. It's concerning this day, this uh, last s- Sunday in October, Nichols writes, a single event on a single day changed the world. It was October 31st, 1517. Brother Martin, a monk and a scholar, had struggled for years with his church, the Church of Rome. He had been greatly disturbed by an unprecedented indulgence sale. The story has all the makings of a Hollywood blockbuster. Let me tell you the the cast. First, there was this young bishop, too young by church laws, Albert of Mainz, Not only was he a bishop over two bishoprics, he desired an additional archbishopric over Mainz. This, too, was against church laws. So Albert appealed to the pope in Rome, Leo X. Leo greedily allowed his taste to exceed his financial resources, enter the artists, sculptors, Raphael and Michelangelo. When Albert of Mainz appealed for a papal dispensation, Leo X was ready to deal. Albert, with papal blessing, would sell indulgences for past, present, and future sins. All of this sickened the monk, Martin Luther. Can we buy our way into heaven? Luther had to speak out. But why October 31st? November 1 had a special place in the church calendar as All Souls Day. On November 1st, 1517, a massive exhibit of newly acquired relics would be on display at Wittenberg 
Luther's home city. Pilgrims would come from all over, genuflect before the relics, and take hundreds if not thousands of years of time off purgatory. Luther's soul grew even more vexed. None of this seemed right. Martin Luther, a scholar, took quill in hand, dipped it in his inkwell, and penned his 95 theses, October 31st, 1517. These were intended to spark a debate, to stir some soul-searching among his fellow brothers in the church. The 95 Theses sparked far more than a debate. The 95 Theses also revealed the church was far beyond rehabilitation. It needed reformation. The church and the world would never be the same. One of Luther's 95 Theses declares, the church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That alone is the meaning of Reformation Day. The church had lost sight of the gospel because it had long ago papered over the pages of God's word with layer upon layer of tradition. Tradition always brings about a system of works, of earning your way back to God. It was true of the Pharisees and is true of the medieval Roman Catholicism. Didn't Christ himself say, my yoke is easy and my burden light? Reformation Day celebrates the joyful beauty of the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. What is Reformation Day? It is the day the light of the gospel broke forth out of darkness. It's the day that began the Protestant Reformation. It was a day that led Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and many other reformers helping the church find its way back to God's word as the only authority for faith and life and leading the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and I would add to the glory of God alone. It kindled the fires of missionary endeavors. It led to hymn writing and congregational singing. It led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching for the people of God. It's a celebration of a theological, ecclesiastical, and cultural transformation and something for which we are truly blessed this day. I want to give your, you a moment to prepare your heart to worship Christ privately where you're at, to prepare your heart to hear and heed his word, to participate in the joy that we have of singing his praises this day. Take a moment privately to prepare your heart, and then I'll pray for us corporately, and I'll allow one of the reformers, John Calvin, to pray for us as I'll read his prayer from 1542. Take a moment now, pray and prepare your heart, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let us pray. Father, we have gathered together 
made saints by Christ and Christ alone. We're thankful for the grace that you have granted to us this fabulous gift in Jesus Christ our Lord. You've regenerated our hearts and allowed us to express in great faith to you. I pray that you would build us up in this most holy faith. May we be guided by your word in all we say and all we do. May we be led to glorify you in everything, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do. We do pray that Christ would be exalted, not only in this day, but the days ahead. And in the words of our brother John Calvin from years ago, we pray in concert with him, Lord. O oh Lord, with heartfelt sorrow, we repent of our deplorable offenses. We condemn ourselves and our evil ways with true penance, entreating that your grace may relieve our distress. Be pleased to have compassion on us, O most gracious God, Father of all mercies, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And as you remove our guilt and our pollution, grant us the daily increase of your grace, of your Holy Spirit, that acknowledging from our innermost hearts our own unrighteousness, we may be touched with the sorrow that will work true repentance, and that mortifying all sins within us, your spirit may produce the fruits of holiness and righteousness, well-pleasing in your sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Second Samuel says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number 656. And we'll sing, a mighty fortress is our God. 656.
122. 122, O God, our help in ages past. We must tell a future generation the praises of the Lord. Psalm 78, 4. 122. Good morning, church. Please turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 140. You can find this on page 522 of your pew Bible. A common besetting sin for people is the fear of man, especially the fear of evil men. David spends a significant amount of time in this passage discussing evil men, and he would be very familiar with the subject. I've been spending some time in recent days listening to some biblical counseling resources, and one of the key precepts that they continue to emphasize is that everything about a person can be traced back to what we know. Our feelings and actions will flow forth from what we know and embrace to be true. In verses 12 and 13, the psalmist sums up this passage with what he knows to be true about God. He says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. It's easy to get intimidated and downcast by the actions of evil people. 
both those we rub shoulders with and those we see on the news. When this happens, I would encourage you with this thought, especially that the upright, his children, will dwell in his presence forever. Amen. <clears throat> Read with me now. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me, and with cords they have spread a net. Beside the way they have set snares for me. I say to the Lord, You are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. O Yahweh, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted. As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. I know that Yahweh will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, please help us not to be afraid of evil people. Help us to fear you and you alone. May the thought of being with you in your presence extinguish every besetting sin that seeks to rob us of joy. Thank you for your precious word that reminds us of what is true in a world filled with lies. May it be our strength and our song all the day. May we feast on the glories of Christ that it contains. Let us eat his flesh and drink his blood. Please bless the offering of our worship of you today. Let both be pleasing to you. Father, I pray especially of those for those who were not able to make it to be with us today, who are encountering difficulty. I pray that you would send them special encouragement through your Holy Spirit. Let our hearts be full of love toward you, our brothers and sisters and unbelievers. Please help us to pray for our enemies. Even now, Lord, if there are any listening who do not know you, I pray that you would give them your Holy Spirit, that they may dwell with you forever. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
let's take our hymn books and stand and let's sing the solid rock number 511 my hope is built on nothing less than jesus blood and righteousness 511 Grace greater than our sin. When sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Romans 5 20. 
families and church. We will focus on God's grace today and invite you to turn in your Bibles to that small little letter just before the book of Revelation. We're going to look at Jude. We're going to postpone our exposition of Hebrews until next week so I can address particular Reformation Sunday. I, I looked in some of my notes, and I think it's been about 10 years since I addressed the subject. I thought it would be helpful to take a moment and do so today. This little book of Jude was written by Jesus' half-brother, if you will, a brother, a son of Mary and Joseph. You can find that in Mark chapter 6. This letter that's written here it has a sermonic flavor, if you will. It is a letter, but it kind of sounds a little bit like an abbreviated sermon, and I've heard it titled before the Acts of the Apostates. <laughs> Jude is warning of apostasy, very familiar to us as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, in which the preacher of Hebrews does the same thing. Jude is warning. He's warning, like the preacher of Hebrews does, of drifting away from the faith. This was a common theme among apostolic preaching. Let's look, and I'm going to focus on this one concept from verse 3 of contending for the faith, but I'll read it in its immediate context from Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you, beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about a common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were des designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Note, remember the connection here in Hebrews, who the preacher in chapter 3 addresses the same issue. And then he goes on to say, And the angels who didn't stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and its surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme 
the glorious ones. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that you grant us insight into your holy word. May each of us individually and corporately as a body of Christ truly contend for that faith that was once delivered to all the saints. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This key text that I'm noting on in verse 3, notice here, it is the faith once delivered. It is unalterable and unchanging. The culture changes. Christ does not. Christ doesn't change because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He needs no changing. The teaching, the faith, needs no improvement. It needs no revision. The Reformation that we're talking about is called to the church to realign themselves to the very words of Christ, which are timeless and unchanging. Those who would reinterpret Jesus' words are called ungodly here, perverts in verse 4, perverting the very word, grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. This is what was warned in apostolic preaching, and it is something for which the church is called to do in every generation. This apostolic admonition is to continue to contend for the faith, contend against apathy, contend against alteration of the truth, contend against ignorance of it. Today, this day, is a special day on the calendar. Some of you may not be aware of this tradition in alignment with reformers of the 16th century who have designated this last day in October as Reformation Sunday. What is that? It's a day in which we set aside a day when the church remembers that watershed moment in history when many in the church, under the leadership of such men as John Knox, Martin Luther, Heydrich Swingley, and John Calvin, rediscovered, if you will, reaffirmed, reemphasized the very fundamental doctrinal truths of Christianity that are essential to the gospel. They once again heard that preaching to contend to that faith that was once delivered to the saints. These, let me give you a flyover history lesson from the apostolic age until this period of time we're calling the Reformation. If you remember, in Acts chapter 2, the church starts at Pentecost. After the resurrection, then ascension of Christ, the disciples were gathered together. They were watching. They were praying. They were looking for and waiting for this promise of the Holy Spirit where Jesus said, I will empower you. I will send you another of the same kind, the Holy Spirit who actually indwell you and empower you to be a witness to the entire world, Acts 1.8. The Spirit did come, and it resulted in the powerful preaching of the gospel. 
Peter and the apostles preached repentance and faith in Jesus Christ to all of those that were in Jerusalem, and thousands came and repented and believed and were then added to the church. These new converts, we'll find, were were then devoted to that apostolic teaching, to fellowship and to worship and to prayer. You'll find that in Acts 2, 42. The Lord, in response to this powerful work of the Holy Spirit through preaching Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of sin, added to the church daily those who would be saved. As the church grew, there were many corrupting influences which the apostles warned about. Corrupting influences which would then begin to permeate the church. The epistles, if you'll read through them, the letters to the various churches, provide great warnings, warnings of apostasy that is leaving the truth of Jesus Christ. You see, doctrine matters. It is a matter of life and death. If you drink poison, you might become ill. You might even physically die. But if you imbibe false doctrine, you may become spiritually ill and eternally damned. It is a great warning. Paul would preach to the church of Galatia. He's marveling that they would then turn away from this gospel of Jesus Christ so soon to somebody else, to to a different gospel, which is really not a different gospel. It's false. He said, if, if anybody comes, even if an angelic being, somebody that looked really great, was very articulate in what they said, if they preach another gospel, let them be anathema. That means condemned forever in eternal judgment. He says it twice in Galatians chapter 1. Let him be accursed. Paul would tell his protege, Timothy, who would take his reins, if you will, to preach the gospel. Timothy would be the preacher at this great church in Ephesus. And if you remember in 2 Timothy 4, what does he tell them? He tells them then, here's what your subject is. This is what your message is. Preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season when people want to hear it and when they want to walk away. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time is going to come, he warns them, when, when they don't want to hear this anymore. They won't endure what? Sound doctrine, the faith that was once delivered, the apostolic preaching. They won't want to hear that. Instead, they'll gather together teachers that will make them feel good about themselves. Itching ears, he calls it. They'll turn away. And be turned aside to fables. And he calls them to be watchful then in all things and endure afflictions. Do the work of the evangelist to fill your ministry. Because if you preach the gospel, you're going to suffer persecution. They don't want to hear it. The last book of the Bible, Jesus gives great warning to the church. Seven of them there. Five of them. He tells them, listen. If you're not going to listen to me, I'm going to take away the light of the glory of my grace. And he calls them to hear. 
what the Spirit says to the churches. God has sprinkled his messengers then throughout church history to call men to repentance and faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. It is a matter of life and death. Men who sacrifice popularity, political favor, financial security, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share the word of God, the life-giving word with men. There have been seasons of cold, dead orthodoxy in which the warmth of the gospel has been diminished, at the very least clouded over. One of the seasons in history in which it was out of season to preach the word of God was in the 14th century. Men like John Wycliffe and his followers, the Lollards, preached the gospel and tried to bring revival to the church. Wycliffe worked on an English translation of the Bible so that the common man could then read the very word of Christ for himself. The church at that time, the overarching church, not every individual involved but, and not every organized church, but the church in general had become virtually apostate. They opposed his work. They sought to destroy him. They weren't able to. He did die of a stroke in 1384. But 30 years later, a council declared him the man who would translate God's word into a language in which the common people could read English, by the way. They would declare him a heretic and ruled. And they would then order his body to be exhumed and burned and declared all of his writings as heresy and ruled that unauthorized translations of the Holy Scriptures into English was an act of heresy. Wycliffe was called the morning star of Reformation because although it was very dark, the light of the gospel would not be extinguished. They didn't destroy all of his works. They didn't destroy all of his English Bibles. They didn't stop the mouths who would preach the gospel out of season. One of his students, John Huss, who actively promoted the idea that people should be permitted to read the Bible in their own language, they did burn him at the stake in 1415. They burned him fueled by manuscripts from Wycliffe's Bibles as kindling fire. The last words of John Huss were reported that in, quote, a hundred years, God will raise up a man who will call for reform who cannot be suppressed. And almost exactly a hundred years later, in 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses and 95 issues of heretical theology, crimes of the Roman Catholic Church, the state church, he nailed those into the door of Wittenberg Chapel. When asked to recant at the Diet of Worms in 1521, Luther responded, Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I don't accept the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right or safe. Here I stand. 
I can do no other. So help me God. Amen. Well, the rest is history. The flames of Reformation spread like wildfire. The reforms were fueled by Zwingli and Calvin, who preached the gospel and helped to forge five non-negotiable items on which the gospel stands or falls. That is the heart of this Reformation theology to which we affirm. And I wrote them in your worship folder, as I do most weeks. Five of them in Latin, description, sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, soli dea gloria, and solus Christus. These five solas, as we call them, signaled a clear departure from the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, in, in response to this ideology that would form as we codify them in these five, the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century anathematized anyone who would affirm these statements. Anyone who would affirm Scripture alone, that's what sola means. Faith alone, to the glory of God alone, and by Christ alone. The demarcation line is that word alone. There are many people who would affirm that. There are many people who would affirm a lot of things in general. But to signal this out, and this single word alone makes the difference. Let me review with you, with the time that remains, each one of these as I can. This is the faith in which we're going to contend for. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is essential to it? Well, here first and number one is Scripture alone. Rome taught that the foundation for Christian living depended equally on a combination of Scriptures tradition, and the rulings of the church. Now, they cherish the exalted word of God, as they still do today. But they put it on the shelf and gave it equal weight with the rulings of the church and tradition. And I would argue, really, that the, the church, the contemporary church in whatever time period, really is the ultimate authority. Religious people have a tendency to fall into this state of error, holding on to their own ideas and their own traditions. If you remember Jesus dealing with the religious leaders in Mark chapter 7, he accuses him. He said, you, you lay aside the very commandment of God. You hold to the tradition of men. You all too well reject the commandment of God. Religious people have a tendency to do that. The world who would reject God's word will weigh in on their own ideology and their own philosophy. Paul would warn the church at Colossae in Colossians chapter 2. He says to the church, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the Tradition of man. Here it is in religious tradition, just the ideas. Oh, well, we, this is what we always believe. According to the tradition of man, the basic principles of the world, that's the ideas of men, which do need to be updated and changed and revised all the time. In contrast, not according to the word of Christ, which is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It'll never expire. It never goes out of print. 
It never needs to be changed. It never needs to be revised. That is the source. By saying sola scriptura, we mean that the scripture alone is the standard. The reformers called this the, the formal principle of the Reformation. It's, it is the source of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It isn't the only source of information, but it is the only inspired source. No other source is inspired by God and given directly by Him in this way. It is the authority on which everything else is measured. No wonder we call it the canon or the measurement. It's the instrument by which God will reveal the gospel. It is the instrument by which we will hear from Christ. Not from somebody's imagination or somebody's religious tradition. But faith, beloved, is going to come by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Do you want to hear the words of Christ? They're right here. It's one of the reasons we read the Gospels to open the service. I want you to hear the words of Christ. And I hope it drives you to go hear the very words of Christ. From coming to hearing from him comes life. The Belgic Confession written in 1561, says this, We believe that the Holy Scriptures fully contain the will of God, that whatever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. Neither may we consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with those divine Scriptures. Nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude or antiquity of succession of times and persons, councils or decrees or statutes as equal value with the truth of God. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts whatever does not agree with this infallible truth. You remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus shows up and counsels and talks to these people, disciples, didn't know what was going on and he says he opened the scriptures to them it is a scripture Paul would tell t young Timothy to continue because all scripture is by the inspiration of God it is profitable for doctrine for reproof correction and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and fully equipped for every good work. It's not only an authoritative source, beloved, it is sufficient in and of itself. Scripture alone is the only ins inspired authority. The second point that ne we need to contend to for then and, and now and stand in line with those who contend for the gospel, and that is grace alone. The Roman Catholic Church taught, and by the way, still teaches today, that people are saved by a combination of merit that you accumulate through penance and good works. They taught and they teach that there are some super-Christians, if you will, called saints, a unique class of people who have an abundance of good works and 
that are dispensed by the church, and hence this whole idea of selling an indulgent or engaging in prayer to these various saints or involving in some sort of ritualistic activity like lighting candles and doing certain acts. The reformers rejected this notion that man could cooperate with the very grace of God. They rejected the idea of self-merit. They reaffirmed the words of Isaiah that all of our deeds are but filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. All of your deeds, even your good ones. It, it is as though you are stained to begin with and anything you touch is corrupted in that in that regard. So then, then how would you have a righteousness that would exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees who did the best and the good, who, who we wouldn't hold a candle to their external righteousness? That is to have an internal righteousness imputed to you, a righteousness a standing before God given to you how? By the very work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is by His righteousness in which we stand. It is a righteousness that is given to us by grace alone. Paul would say to the church at Rome in 4.6, he talks about the blessed man of the Psalms. How, who, who is that blessed man? Who, who is the, the blessed man that is that is spoken of in the Sermon of the Mount, I'll tell you who that blessed man is. That blessed man from Romans 4, 6 is the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. What a great blessing. Are you that blessed man? Or do you stand before God with his imputed righteousness given to you. It isn't your accomplishment. It isn't your work. It is through this one man's righteous act that this free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life, where God declares the man righteous because of his works. The Baptist Confession of 1689 says, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified. And did by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on their behalf. Their justification is only a free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Understanding a biblical view of the doctrine of grace led to the reformers to reaffirm that apostolic teaching, that faith that was once delivered to all the saints, that was confused by tradition, that was confused and corrupted by other authorities. They reaffirmed the doctrinal teaching we call total depravity of man. The unconditional aspect of election to salvation, the definite atonement that Christ really did accomplish salvation and redemption for those that are in him, the effectual call of the Holy Spirit to salvation, and the preserving grace of God that will complete you in that which he began. 
And why does God do this? He would tell to the church at Ephesus on no less than three occasions in the first salvo of chapter 1 to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glorious of, of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. It is because of Christ's work. And that was rediscovered and reaffirmed and should be contended for even this day. The third aspect is sola fiducia, that is, by faith alone. Rome taught and still teaches that we're justified by faith and works which we produce. They teach that God, through our faith, infuses, as opposed to imputes, give, grace, right? Infuses instead righteousness, which that infusion of righteousness then will merit salvation if it is continued. The reformers rejected this type of faith that lays hold of some sort of meritorious work. And they, refer, and they reaffirmed a faith that holds on to the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ granted to us by his grace. This concept then by faith alone, not by works, is what the reformers would call the material principle of the Reformation. Calvin describes it this way, that the doctrine of justification by faith alone, quote, is as the principal hinge by which religion is supported. Luther would describe it as the article by which the church stands or falls. It was this conviction that this article is the head and cornerstone of the church, which alone begets, nourishes, and builds, and, and preserves, and protects the church. Without it, the church of God cannot exist, he said, in one hour. It was this article of faith, more than any others, that brought the Reformers in conflict with the medieval church in Rome. It was the substantive core of the debate, says the late R.C. Sproul. He comments, Calvin, in his debate with um, the cardinal in 1470-something, said just, or, I'm sorry, 1500s, said justification, I, I didn't write the date down, justification by faith is the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. Remove the knowledge of this doctrine, he argued, and the glory of Christ is extinguished. Religion is abolished. The church is destroyed and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. Do you see why it's essential then, if that is indeed true, faith alone, to contend for that? That was their idea, and I agree. It is faithfulness to this article of faith that determined the outcome of the conflict. At the beginning of our preaching, Luther said, the doctrine of faith had a most happy course, and down fell the Pope's pardons, purgatory, vows, masses, and such like abominations which drew with them the ruin of all popery. And if 
all had continued as they began to teach and diligently urge the articles of justification, that is to say that we're justified neither by the righteousness of the law nor by our own righteousness, but only by the faith in Jesus Christ. Doubtless this one little article, little by little, has overthrown the whole papacy. Luther correctly saw that if sinners are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, then the whole system of salvation rooted in the idea of a priest-operated, church-based religious works would collapse. A new Christ-centered, faith-based Christianity then would rise from its ashes. The Geneva Confession in written by Calvin in 1536, affirms, We confess that the entrance which we have to the great treasures and riches of the goodness of God is, and I'll use the current term, granted to us by faith, inasmuch as certain confidence and assurance of heart we believe in the promises of the gospel and receive Jesus Christ as he is offered to us by the Father described in his word. I'll put it rather simply from a biblical perspective in Acts chapter 16 and verse 30. When they came out to hear the preaching of the, ap- of the apostles, they said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe, have faith, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so all of your household, that is the way anyone would be saved. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. What you must do, you you must say this prayer, you must walk this certain way, give this certain amount, do these kinds of works. No, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Your works will not bring about salvation. And that's the way it's always been, by the way. It isn't a new way, it's an always way. Paul would tell the church at Galatia, just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for what? Righteousness. How did that come about? By faith, Galatians 3, 6. No one is justified by the law in the sight of God. That's evident because the just shall live by faith. Would you like to live? Believe. Believe now. Believe today in Christ and Christ alone. This brings about then this concept of the gospel, a gospel that is declared in the very word of God, a gospel that is a gift, a free gift, accomplished totally by God, believed on by faith. It brings about glory then to God and God alone, and hence our fourth point. Luther described the Roman Catholic Church as holding on to a theology of glory as opposed to the theology of the cross. The glory of sinners' salvation was attributed partly to Christ, partly to Mary, partly to other sinners, saints they called them, and partly to the sinner himself. 
That's the theology of glory. The theology of Christ is that Christ alone brought about salvation in every aspect of it. Because you know why God doesn't share his glory with others. And God does everything for his own glory. What they taught in what is taught in Scripture, the only reason you would be saved in the first place is for God's glory. You remember Ephesians 1, three times? Why was this brought about? To the praise or the glory of his grace. You preach a gospel that praises anything else, you've totally missed the gospel. God's a jealous God. Isaiah writes in 42, 8, My glory I'll not give to another. This is a God-centered and biblical worldview. God is central to it. In fact, he chose the people, he would say, for his own glory. For the foundation of the world, for the glory of his grace. God created mankind ultimately for his glory, and the redemption of mankind expresses that in its fullness. Isaiah 43, bring my sons and daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory. This whole testament, the Old Testament, all of the actions that occurred, all of that is to redound to his glory. The rescue of Israel from Egypt was for his glory. Psalm 106, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Pharaoh, his objector, was raised up to demonstrate the glory of God's name. For the scripture says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Romans 9, 17. He then defeated Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. Why? To show his glory. Exodus chapter 14. He hardened Pharaoh's heart and he pursued them. Yet God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord. All the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. God spared Israel in the wilderness rather than completely take them out during their rebellion for his glory. He gave them victory in Canaan. Why, why did all that occur? For his glory, Second Samuel seven twenty three. God went and redeemed his people, making himself a name and doing them for great and awesome things, driving out before your people. God doesn't cast away his people because of the glory of his name, 1 Samuel twelve twenty. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name, 2 Kings 19. God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name, Ezekiel 36. 
He says, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. And God gave his son ultimately to vindicate the glory of his righteousness. You can find in Romans 3.25, it is to show God's righteousness at this present time. And God forgives our sins. Why would he forgive any of your sins? Isaiah 43 I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. For your own sake, the psalmist would say in Psalm 25, pardon my guilt, for it is great. God does all things for his glory. In the 16th century, the monks divided life into categories of secular and sacred The reformers rejected that concept that all life then would be lived to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you're planting flowers, do that to the glory of God. If you're working in accounting, do that to the glory of God. If you're cleaning up a mess or building something, all of it to be done to the glory of God. All of life is then to be sanctified, set apart to his glory. For of him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And finally, we hit the fifth point, and that is solus Christus, Christ alone. Rome taught that there were a lot of mediators between God and man. The priest and this whole priestly order functioned in that way as a representative of, of Christ, an altar Christus, a vicar of Christ. Approaching God directly was discouraged. Instead, the church promoted prayers to saints or Mary or some other to speak on your behalf to God. The best mediator, they thought, was Mary, since she could speak directly to her son. The Reformers called the church to recognize the uniqueness of Christ and Christ alone. Paul would tell us in 2 Timothy 5, For there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. John Calvin in his Institutes puts it this way, Christ stepped in, took the punishment upon himself, and bore the judgment due sinners. With his own blood, he expiated the sins which made them enemies of God, and therefore thereby satisfied him. So we look to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. Likewise, the Heidelberg Catechism, question 30, asks, do such, such then believe in Jesus as the only Savior who seek their salvation and happiness in the saints in themselves or anywhere else? Answer, they do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true, that either Jesus is not a complete Savior or that they who by true faith receive this Savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. We affirm Christ alone 
we preach Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ alone is the personification of all of the other solas. Have you thought about it? Jesus is the Word. Jesus graced us with his sacrificial gift. It is Jesus who is the object of our faith. And it is at the name of Jesus Christ that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God. Paul would put it this way to the church of Colossae. In chapter 1 and verse 13, He has delivered us, this is speaking of Jesus, from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for By him all things were created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And hence we conclude, solus Christus, Christ alone. Rome has not changed its dogma. This isn't pick on Rome day. It's just to reflect on bad theology, wherever it might be expressed. In particular, the reformers were dealing with the theological conclusions of Rome, which were damning. They are anathema. And many religious institutions, and maybe you even individually, may affirm these principles. I was in an event and had a t-shirt on that had Grace Reformed Baptist Church on the front. And a pastor of a well-known church that I know of, he said, he scratched his head and said, what's what's a Reformed Baptist? So I just turned around and showed him the back of my shirt and it had these five solos on it. And he said, oh, I agree with that. As to many. They believe in Scripture. They believe in grace. They believe in faith. They believe in God. They believe in Christ. But the distinction is alone. You can't add anything to it. You don't add to the gospel. That's the holy faith. That's the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It is the faith that we contend for even this day. Scripture, grace, faith, God, Christ alone. 
I'll read one more selection from Jude and I'll finish. I think Jerry will close us out in a minute with a benediction from Jude, by the way. But here, towards the end, he'll say, after telling the church to contend for this faith, he says, but you must remember, verse 17, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy. That's your response. Have compassion on those that would reject this truth. Feel sorry for them. But contend for the truth. Have mercy on those that doubt. And save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear and hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that we will continue in that bold confidence of your word and hold it firm to the end. And yes, I do pray that we would have compassion and mercy on those that don't believe. By the proclamation of Christ, might you bring them to life, literally snatching them out of the fire and giving them the glory of your grace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a moment now to think and respond directly where you're at. You only need one mediator. That's the man Christ Jesus. So take a moment now and respond directly to him in any way he has spoken to you today. Take a moment now. pray that your mercy, grace, faith, and love would be multiplied to each of us in Christ alone, to your glory alone. In his name we pray, amen. Let's all stand and turn to 104 in our hymnals, Amazing Grace, we'll sing the first and the last.
praying will be dismissed. And gracious Father, we are indeed thankful for your amazing grace, Lord, which is beyond all comprehension. And Father, we pray now as we go <clears throat> and depart to the fellowship hall for the meal, we just ask that you would bless the fellowship around the table and the food and those that prepared it. And Father, we pray now that you, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.